This is a uh, difficult passage for particularly Westerners to get because we are so steeped in individualism and I think in particular the way the consumer culture shapes us and squeezes us. Um, A lot of us, unless we really actively resist it, we just sort of get squeezed into thinking that we are what we choose to buy, what we choose to wear, what we choose to surround ourselves with, whether it's our friends, the college we go to, the music we like. Uh, In so many ways, everything in our culture says you are what you choose. Now, of course, when you come into Christianity, you find that Christianity has a very different view. And in fact, it has just the opposite view, (laughs) that you are not what you choose. You are what's chosen you. And not only that, you can never think of yourself as merely an individual. The Bible says, and in this passage in particular, in Romans chapter 5, where Paul is now beginning to get to the real heart of the gospel. What is good about the good news and how does it actually work that this righteousness from God can come to us? And as he begins to unpack this, he explains this idea of federal headship. That sounds real fun, real sexy, right? You can put it on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. Well, look, we're going to get into some doctrine tonight. Now, lest you think that doctrine is a bad word, I would submit that every one of you has doctrine. Doctrine. You all have theology. Theology simply means a word about God. And every one of you has certain ideas about God. So it's not about whether you have theology or doctrine or not. The question is, does your doctrine line up with what the Bible says? If it doesn't, That's a problem. Not just a problem because, oh, you're wrong and you'll get it wrong on the test someday. No, it's a problem because, as Martin Luther said well one time, bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. Bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. What you think about God is of ultimate relevance to how you live. It really is. Now, what Paul is explaining in this passage here is that everything you are And everything you can hope for is dependent upon whether you're in Adam or in Christ. And that's kind of a strange idea. So we're going to go through this passage and and sort of unpack what does Paul mean by this? Why is it so important to understand that everything you have, you have through a representative? And that cuts both ways for good and for bad. So let's read what Paul has to say about this in Romans chapter 5. We'll start with verse 6, because last time we were together, we looked at the first uh, few verses from Romans 5. Paul says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Now, this, is a, this is a little difficult to follow Paul's train of thought here. Let me just explain this as I dive into this next little section. He starts to make a comparison in verse 12 between Christ and between Adam. But as soon as he hears himself say it, he spends seven verses telling you how they're not alike before he finally gets to the point he was making about how they are alike. So verse 13 through verse 17 is a giant parenthesis. And you'll see that when we get to verse 18. He'll pick up like he did in verse 12 and he'll complete the thought. But that's where we are. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, meaning Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not the easiest passage to understand. And not only that, we have sort of built-in resistance to the idea that we can be represented by somebody. Because we love to do it ourselves. We love to do it all ourselves. But the good news of the gospel is you can't. And there is one who lives and dies in the place of sinners. Therefore, there is good news to proclaim and hope to be found. Let's pray together as we dig into this passage. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your love. We do thank you that you came and you lived and you died to undo all that sin had done. And we pray, Lord, that we would understand even more about that tonight. And not only that we would understand, but that we would rejoice in what you have done to bring reconciliation between God and man. We ask you to help us send your spirit to open our eyes to behold the glories that are here in this passage for us tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what Paul's basically arguing in, in a fairly you know, difficult to follow but vitally important argument is that everything we have, we have through a representative. And like I said, this cuts both ways. He's teaching it all through the passage. For example, in verse 10, he says, If when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. 
How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? This idea that everything we have in Christianity, in the good news that the Bible calls the gospel, everything we have is through Christ, which is to say it's through someone who represents us. That's what he's saying here. But in verse 12, he begins to really unpack it. In detail, The problem with following his train of thought, like I said, as soon as he brings up the idea and starts the comparison, he, he sort of shrinks back and has to sort of qualify in all kinds of ways. Because it's almost like, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's, you can say Christ is like Adam. As a matter of fact, in one of his other letters, Paul goes so far as to call Christ the second Adam. And certainly... Um, you know, there are other places in the Bible where this kind of idea comes across. But there's, it just sort of sticks in Paul's throat to say Christ is like Adam. Why? Well, there's a number of reasons. Because Adam sinned and brought death into our world to all men and women. In the uh, Greek, you know, the, uh, the plural masculine is, is gender neutral. It includes men and women. There's no good English way, except in the South, you can say y'all. You know, but that's not really proper English, so they don't put it in the Bible. But whenever it says through to all men, it means to y'all, to everybody. Okay, so women, you're not excluded. They're, you're not left out there wondering, well, what about us? You're included in this, all right? Death came to all humanity because of what Adam did, just as grace can come because of what Jesus did. That's the comparison he's making. But again, he's saying, before you look at how they're alike, look at all the ways they're different. But the point right now is that we have what we have through a representative. This is crucial to understand in the gospel. Now, when I was your age, I didn't understand this at all. I became a Christian probably in ninth grade. I had a vague sense that I could have a personal relationship with Jesus, which had before ninth grade was like the craziest idea I'd ever heard. I thought if you just went to church and you participated in the sacraments and the liturgy and all that stuff, that that made you a Christian. And then I heard that you could have a personal relationship with Jesus and you actually needed to be forgiven for your sins uh, and you needed to you know, embrace the gospel. All that sort of stuff was new to me. But when I, when I came to understand that, I lived for many, many years really almost till the end of college, with a very superficial understanding that in some way what Jesus did made it possible for me to be reconciled to God the Father. And I knew it had something to do with sin, and I knew it had something to do with the cross, but I didn't really understand any of the mechanics of how that worked. And you might think, well, it doesn't really matter that you understand it in that kind of detail. It's really not that important as long as you know Jesus and I would say to that, yes and no. You don't have to understand all the details to be a Christian. Paul later in the same letter is going to say, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. You don't have to have a degree in theology. You don't even have to understand the details of Romans chapter 5 to be a Christian. But he writes this for a reason. And part of that reason is because bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. And it's important that you understand that if you have a superficial understanding of the gospel and a superficial understanding of what Jesus did, it's very difficult for you to have a rich experience of the gospel. 
Now, if you think that all that God came to do was to just offer a, a, a way for you to get to heaven when you die, well, then you might be content with just knowing the bare minimum so that you can get to heaven when you die. But Christianity has never been about that. God created Adam and Eve and all mankind to be in rich relationship with him. The Bible talks about how before sin entered the world, it was Adam and Eve's regular practice to walk with God in the cool of the day, to relate to him face-to-face in intimate, wonderful, rich fellowship. And when that was broken, God did not wash his hands of his relationship with people. He set about making a way for it to be possible for them to have that rich relationship again. And I know in a lot of settings, Christianity is described as a way for you to get forgiven. But I think that's a really a very poor, cheap substitute for what it really is. It's about so much more than being forgiven. It's about what Paul describes here, reconciliation. The difference between being forgiven and being reconciled is that reconciled is intensely personal. And it gets at the idea that it's not enough for you just to be forgiven. What God is after is to have you close to him, close to his heart. The the whole temple was about this. It was to show you that to get back to this rich fellowship, somebody had to go under the sword. You remember after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, God places an angel there with a flaming sword to guard the way back to the tree of life. Now, we can talk about that. Maybe next semester we will, depending on what I decide to preach on. But here's the point. In the temple, embroidered on this curtain, big, thick curtain, that separated the, the inner part of the temple, what was called the Holy of Holies, from the rest of the temple, a place that nobody could go, Inside the Holy of Holies, embroidered on that, were palm trees and a sword. The, the symbolism is such that the, the temple, to get back to the temple, is to get back to the garden. I know Joni Mitchell, you know, talked about how we have to get ourselves back to the garden, right? And Crosby, Stills, and Nash made that popular, right? But here's the thing. You can't get yourself back to the garden. Because to do so, you have to go under the sword. And there's only one person who went under the sword and who didn't stay under the sword, but was resurrected because he didn't deserve to go under the sword. And that's Jesus. And here's what Paul is saying is, reconciliation is made possible because Jesus died and because he was resurrected again. And then you may ask, well, how does that connect to me? And here's where he gets into the whole thing. It's through a representative, or what we might call federal headship. And you say, okay, wait a second, federal headship, what in the world is that? That sounds like political science. And in a sense, you might be right. Because in some ways, you can understand this concept. Because if the president and Congress declare war, you're at war whether you voted for them or not. There are so many places in your life where this reality exists. The fact that you are connected to things that you didn't personally choose. Now, I know that it's not to the advertiser's advantage to tell you that. The advertisers want you to believe that you choose everything about you. And that the best things in life, of course, are spontaneous, and therefore you're going to need a credit card if you want to have those rich experiences, those once-in-a-lifetime experiences, right? That, That kind of silliness shapes us and molds us. Why? Because we love the idea that we're in control of our destiny, 
It's just sort of the modern American twist on that is you're in charge of your destiny, which you get to through buying the right stuff or choosing the right stuff, whether you buy it at a thrift store or whether you buy it, you know, at the mall or wherever or online or whatever you do, right? And Paul says, no, you are defined by who you're connected to. And and he says that first and foremost, what you need to understand is you're connected to Adam. And you may think, well, I don't like that idea. I don't like the idea that I'm seen as guilty because of something that somebody else did. But here's the issue, guys. If you reject the idea that someone can represent you, because you don't like the idea that Adam would represent you, even though, you know, there's, Adam did a better job potentially than you could have ever done, and you ratify what he did every day. So don't, don't flatter yourself to think that if you were there, you would have done better. God chose a perfect representative who did not have sin to represent us. But he sinned. And what Paul says here, and again, this may not be something that you say, well, yeah, I agree with that. That makes sense to me. It may not make sense to you. There are certain things that are revealed in the Bible. And we believe them because God has revealed them, not because we can, I guess, personally test the hypothesis and see that it works out. But Paul does give you one way to test it. He says, everybody dies. Why does everybody die? The answer is because all have sinned in Adam. Now, a lot of people don't like this idea. In some, in some churches, they have this idea of the age of accountability. Have you heard of this idea? Maybe you were raised in a church where they had that. I don't know if you understand what that doctrine is technically. It technically is this, that yes, you get credit for Adam's sin, but you don't get it until you're old enough to choose yourself. Now, that doctrine is nowhere in the Bible, and it it doesn't really fit in with what Paul's saying here. Why would infants die if they weren't accountable yet? Now, you know, I I will say in, in, in the spirit of charity that I think that that doctrine of the age of accountability is trying to sort of make a way uh, for people who aren't able to choose Christ to be saved. And the reason that this doctrine develops in certain churches is because they think that what saves you is your choice. So you see, that raises a big problem if somebody dies before they're able to make a choice. What do you do? Well, you have to basically say, well, um, we've got to find another way for them to be not guilty before they can choose. Better to actually embrace what the gospel says, which is you're saved because God's grace comes to you, takes away your heart of stone, and gives you a heart of flesh. And it's not because you chose it. That isn't the key that unlocked the gift. It comes to you. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But the Bible says that Jesus is the author and finisher of your faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. Do you want to understand what the Bible means by grace? It doesn't mean giving you a hand so that you can grab it and pull yourself out of the muck. No, Paul says here, you're powerless. You're ungodly. You need to be reconciled. And in Ephesians 2, he says, you're dead. But God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive in Christ. How does he do that? Well, here he gets into the nitty-gritty of that in, in, in Romans 5. He does it by uniting you with Christ. 
Now, this admittedly is kind of a difficult topic, but it's a central topic in the Bible. As a matter of fact, Paul uses the phrase in Christ, I-N, in Christ, 164 times in his letters. It's a very important idea, and it's also a very important idea here in Romans chapter 5. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ is what he's saying here. Do you get that? Do you see that? Sin entered the world through one man, and death came to all men because all sinned. Now, look at that in verse 12. When Adam sinned, you sinned. That's what Paul's saying. It's not that you inevitably sin. No, he's saying that you sinned in that one sin because he was your representative. Now, like I said, you ratify that every day. You continue to sin, certainly. And Paul believes that, and he says that in other places. But what he's getting at here is what Adam did, you get credit for. But before you say, no, wait a sec, that's unfair, I hate that idea, the flip side of that is what the gospel is, the good news is, is that what Christ did, you get credit for. That you died with Christ, right? We died with Christ, and we've been risen with Christ. Now, he's going to develop this more in chapter 6. Because this has everything to do with how you live the Christian life. All people sinned and died in Adam. That's what he's saying. So what is all this weird stuff in in verse 13 and 14? Let, Let me just take a second to explain this to you. Paul says, before the law was given. By that he means the Ten Commandments and the law through Moses. Before that law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Probably a better translation is something along the lines of, but sin is not seen or fully recognized as sin where there is no law. This is consistent with what the Bible teaches in other places. That sin, sorry, the law doesn't create sin it really operates more as a magnifying glass to help you see something that was already there and to see it more clearly. So the the law, the Ten Commandments come, and people had been sinning between Adam and Moses. The way you know that is everybody died. As he says here, death reigned, verse 14, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as did Adam. So what he's saying is Adam broke a specific command, a specific prohibition. Do not eat of this tree. And Adam broke that. But it took until Moses came before there was laid down another sort of specific prohibition. Nevertheless, death reigned and people were still sinners, but they weren't as conscious of it is what he's getting at here. Um, And then he talks about Adam who is a pattern of, of the one to come. And this he's getting to that idea that Christ comes as the second Adam. Here's the way to understand this. When God created human beings, he created them to be in rich relationship with him. And that rich relationship meant submitting to his word. He is, after all, the creator, the one who made us. And he made us to live in a particular way, in relationship with him. 
And when Adam and Eve violated that, they allied themselves with God's enemy against God. And God said, death is what you deserve. If you set yourself up against me and my ways and my kingdom, then death is what you will reap. But, but, God never quit requiring that you love him with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. When Jesus comes as the second Adam, he comes not just to die the death that we deserved, but he also comes and he obeys at every point in which mankind has sinned. And, and what you get when you get Christ, when you take Christ by faith, you get not only forgiveness because his death becomes your death. And so you can say that in Christ, you really have died. You may think, well, I'm a sinner. I've failed God. I've let my friends down. I've not even held up to the standards of how I want to live for myself. That's right. You haven't. And you deserve death. But here's, here's the crazy thing. When you take Christ, you take death. When you take Christ, you take death. His death becomes your death. Therefore, you can say that you've already been judged guilty and the penalty has already been meted out. It's not still hanging over your head. It already happened because you died with Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. You are united to him by faith. But not only that, when he rose from the dead, you rose with him. And so when you take Christ by faith, you take death but you also take new life. And so it's possible, and Paul will say this in the next chapter, that you've been crucified with Christ and you've been resurrected with Christ. Therefore, your old identity, slave to sin, is gone. You've been set free now to struggle with sin. But as a new person, a genuinely new person, so when you, when you ask Jesus to come and to be yours, you're not just adding him on to everything you've already had, like frosting. You know, I was a pretty good guy, but, you know, a little frosting on top would make it even better. No, Jesus doesn't come in that way. You take Christ. When you take Christ, you take death and you take life. And you're never the same. Everything's different about you. Everything that you can have, you have through taking Christ. And the reason this is important is I think for so many people, we understand the gospel somehow to be not so intimately connected with Christ. I think often, actually, preachers preach the benefits of Christ and encourage you to take the benefits without taking Christ himself. But the job of a preacher is to display Christ before you so that you would take him in his beauty and, and, and grab him and take him and say, I have to have him like, like Jacob. I won't let you go. I'm going to hold on to you with everything I have. Have you done that? Do you know what that's like to take Christ, to take his death and to take his life? You can't do that while still sort of 
I guess, um, hedging your bets and saying, I'm going to take Christ, but I'm also going to make sure that God knows that I really am a pretty good guy, and I'm certainly not as bad as that guy. And, you know, I know a lot of people that are a lot worse than me, you know. I'm, you know, I'm not the greatest girl, but at least I'm not like her, right? You know, you can't hedge your bets because that would be saying, I'm not really willing to die. I'm going to take Christ. I would like Christ to sort of make up what's lacking in me, but I want to go as far as I can on my own, and then I just want Jesus, a little bit of Jesus, just the little bit I need to sort of make sure that God loves me. That doesn't work. You can't take a little bit of Jesus. If you take Jesus, you take his death, and that means you give up on everything you had. That's why Martin Luther said that faith in Christ is a living, daring hope. It's bold. It's not sort of just taking a little bit to sort of round out your resume. It's taking death and saying, everything I had is rubbish. Remember how Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 3? He goes through his resume. Listen, I was, I was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was the top dog. I even spoke Hebrew when most Jews didn't even know how to speak Hebrew anymore. As for pursuing God and righteousness, I was faultless. There was nobody like me. But when Christ broke into my life, I took his death. And it put to death everything I hoped and trusted in. But I also took his life. And now I can boast in his death and in his life because he lives and died for me. So as I said, that great hymn by Horatius Bonar, upon a death I did not die, upon a life I did not live, I stake my whole eternity. Take Christ. Don't take a little bit of Christ. Don't be content with just taking a little Jesus. You need Christ, his death and his life. And that's what he offers. Now, Paul doesn't want us to just understand this. He wants us to rejoice in this. So go back and look at this in verse 6. These are some of my favorite verses. I don't know if you have ever been in the practice of memorizing passages in the Bible. But I would tell you, I think one of the best passages to memorize in the whole Bible is Romans 5.8. I think every word in there is worth meditating on. I told you right about how the Puritans talked about meditation as like a cow chewing the cud. I know it's a graphic image, but this is one of those verses where you could, you could chew on every single word and get rich nourishment from it. Look at this. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Demonstrates. This is the language of God wanting to make sure you know about his love. Do you, do you understand the difference? It's one thing for God to love you. It's another thing for him to go out of his way to demonstrate his love. Why would he want to demonstrate his love? Isn't it enough for him just to say, well, yeah, I'll just let those guys off. I won't count their sin against them. That would be mercy enough. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't work salvation off in a corner somewhere. He demonstrates his love by Jesus hanging on a cross where all Jerusalem could come out and see him, the king of the Jews, hanging there, bleeding, dying. God demonstrates his love. Why? Because we find it so hard to believe. Don't you find it hard to believe that God could love you? You understand, right? God has to demonstrate his love because we're so thick-headed. 
We're so resistant. We have so many reasons to argue with God why we don't deserve his love and why he couldn't possibly want to give it to us. And to all those reasons, he says, no, look at the cross. Don't tell me you're unworthy. Well, of course. (laughs) That's why you take the death of Christ and all your unworthiness is dealt with. You take the life of Christ and you're seen as righteous in my sight. Don't tell me you're unworthy. I demonstrated my love for you on a cross. Don't tell me that you don't deserve it. Of course you don't deserve it. Whoever said that you did? But I demonstrated my love by Jesus hanging on a cross. Right? Paul knows how to sort of gospel argue with our cold, unthankful hearts. And he says, listen, while we were, while we were sinners... Christ died for us. Every one of those phrases is important. Do you understand? Like, unless you really understand what the Bible means when it says you were a sinner, then Christ died for you is really not that big a deal. Do you understand? Like, I love that hymn by Charles Wesley that we sang. I'm not crazy about the tune. I don't know. You know, I don't like the other one either, though, so I don't know what to do. But I love that text. I love that text. Alive in him, my living head. Do you understand what that, see? This is not just some reform doctrine. This is Charles Wesley. This is like the prince of the Methodists, right? Alive in him, my living head. And clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne. And claim the crown through Christ my own. Alive in him. If Christ is alive and you're in him, you're alive. No matter what you feel, no matter what your conscience tells you. Wow. So while you were a sinner, while you were powerless, while you were ungodly, Christ died for you. Paul thinks it's important to ram that home. Because unless you remember frequently, regularly, who you were by nature, the gospel will never have the same kind of power that it should have. So think much about what it meant while you were powerless, while you were a sinner, that Christ, now Christ died for you. Christ, the one who knew no sin. Christ, the one who only ever treated people with love and kindness. Christ, the one who was lovelier than the Rose of Sharon, than the loveliest thing you can imagine. The, the, the one who broken, desperate people felt freedom to come and throw themselves at his feet, knowing that he wouldn't cast them away. Jesus, this one, this beautiful one, who said it was his meat and drink to do the will of his father, whose father said on two occasions, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's the one who died. You know, there's this verse in Hebrews that I just can't get over. It says it was fitting, or, or how does it say? That, that, um, it, yeah, it was fitting that the, the author of our salvation should be made perfect through suffering. And I just, that it's always just sort of stuck in my throat. How is it fitting that Jesus, who didn't do anything wrong, would be one who called to suffer? So while we were sinners, Christ... Think of who Christ is, who died for you. And then he died. 
He died. He died because you needed more than mere information. It, di- it doesn't say Christ came down and told us what to do. It doesn't say that while we were still sinners, Christ came down and offered us a helping hand. It says Christ died. And you can take a sense of the scale of how serious your problem was from what Jesus did. Why? Because Jesus prayed in the garden to his Father, if there be any other way for these people to be reconciled to you, let this cup pass from me. Don't make me go to the cross unless it's absolutely necessary. It was absolutely necessary. Do you, do you understand, like, the sense, Romans 5, 8, like how crazy that is? It's, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at, at one level. And that's why I think the only appropriate answer is to rejoice. But the way you rejoice is through these questions that just don't really have answers. And can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Listen, if that ever fails to stun you, If you're a Christian and that fails to stun you, then go back and meditate. While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. There's something about that formula that's not hitting you the way it should. If and can it be isn't the song of your heart. But here's the good news. God demonstrates his love for us because he knows that often our hearts don't resonate with that because we think that we deserve it. You know, there's this, this German poet who's famous uh, for, for his deathbed saying. He was asked if he was worried to meet God. After all, he denied God and had attacked God in a lot of his writings throughout his life. And he said, no, God will forgive me. That's his job. I think sometimes we take the forgiveness of God for granted. While you were a sinner, while you were God's enemy, Christ died for you. Rejoice in this. Be stunned by this. How do you know know you're getting it? Let me just say this in conclusion. I I, I stole this from Tim Keller because he said it so well. So I'm just going to give you five quick points. I'm not going to even get into them because I I wrote a couple things about them on the outline. But first, how do you know, how do you know that you're rejoicing in reconciliation? Because that's that's what Paul says here in verse 11. Not only is this so, not only have we been reconciled, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul goes through all this stuff to explain all this stuff, not just so you could know it, not just so you could impress your friends. I learned about federal headship today. No, so that you could rejoice in federal headship. If all you do is you understand it, woe is you. Rejoice in it. How do you know you're rejoicing in it? First, your mind is satisfied with it. You, say, you un- begin to understand, and you want to understand even more, justification by faith because I'm united with Christ and his death and his life. And you just can't get enough of wanting to understand what is that about? How does that work? What are the implications of it? You rejoice in it first by studying it. It's hard to rejoice in it if you don't even understand what it is. So you may need to read Romans 5. You may need to pick up a good book on justification, and I could recommend some. You may need to grab coffee with me or somebody and say, talk to me more about this. I'm trying to understand this idea because it seems really important. I think I should understand it. 
So that's one way. Second, you, Keller says you only think of your past in terms of it, in terms of this reconciliation that's happened. You don't say, oh, what a mess I made there in my life. You say, wow, me a Christian, me a friend of God, one in whom he rejoices, that's what you can't get over. Of course you make a mess of your life. But when you're rejoicing in reconciliation, it, gives, it, it, it becomes the context for everything else. And before you even begin to think, oh, what a mess I am, you think, wow, imagine that me, a sinner, who demonstrates it time and time again, is one who's been reconciled to God by the death of his perfect, innocent son. Imagine that. And whenever you see more sin in your life, it gives you more cause to wonder and be grateful and rejoice in your reconciliation. Third, when you discover in yourself some surprising new character flaw, and believe me, you're still young. You're going to discover a lot. Some of them you may discover when you get married. Some of them you may discover when you have kids. Some of them may you discover when you run into trials. But you will discover new character flaws. You will discover new fears. You will discover new lacks of self-control. When you find that, if you're rejoicing in reconciliation, it doesn't make you doubt God's love. It makes you even more amazed by it. Because his love, his reconciliation, is settled. And the more you find about how wretched you really are, the more amazed you are that Christ would die for you. When, when you're, this is the fourth one. When your conscience accuses you and says, you're, you're, you're a screw-up. <laughs> you're a, 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 a faithless friend. You're lazy. Whatever. You don't say, well, I'm not that bad. No, you say, you know what? Even if I'd done this perfectly, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make me any more lovely to Jesus. I've been reconciled by Christ's death. Not because I did things well or didn't do things well. My plea is Christ and his righteousness. Like we sang, Rock of Ages, right? You remember the name of that hymn originally was a living and a dying prayer for the holiest believer on earth. I don't care how well you've done. Your living and dying prayer is all for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone, right? And finally, I'll say this is the last one. When you face criticism, and you will, and I'm sure you do all the time, your first thought is not, oh, that's totally unfair. Your first thought is, well, yeah, that's probably fair, and it's prob I'm probably even worse. But Jesus loved me and died in my place. Martin Luther said one time, he said, look, if Satan comes to you and tells you you're a miserable piece of crap, don't try to argue with him. Say, devil, you don't know the half of it. I'm much worse than you think, but go take it up with Jesus. He lived and died in my place. Take it up with Jesus. Argue with him, because he told me there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There can't be. I've already died. And I've already been raised to new life. Let's pray together.